love. I can't even say the word without thinking of Princess Bride and the priest. (laughs) But love. No other topic receives more attention in our world than love. Songwriters sing about it. Novelists write about it. Artists paint about it. Poets rhyme about it. People pursue it, sometimes to their detriment. There are a lot of questions that surround love. Primarily, people ask, what is love? And we have, we as a culture, I mean, have trumped love up to be this affectionate feeling. And although love does generate feelings, is it primarily a feeling? What is love? I have a couple quotes for you. Tim Keller writes, Love is never primarily defined in the Bible as a feeling. At its foundation, love is at least a commitment and a promise. C.S. Lewis tells us that love is not affectionate feeling, but a steady wish for the loved person's ultimate good as far as it can be obtained. And Thomas Aquinas, the Italian priest, philosopher, and theologian, defined love as the choice to will the good of the other. DC Talk said love is a verb. I heard one pastor quite simply put it this way, love is you before me. Love is you before me. Love is a commitment to another person that puts them above self. You before me, it's not a feeling, not primarily, but rather a commitment toward another person's good. And I wanted to lay all of that out this morning, first of all, because our text doesn't deal with a definition of love. It doesn't deal with a definition of love, so I wanted to start off making sure we were all clear on what the definition of love is before we move into the text. In Mark 12, 28-34, it deals with the supremacy of love. The supremacy of love. Love is is a commitment, it's that commitment, it's that supreme quality for us as human beings. If we don't have love, if we don't have this commitment toward one another, well, Paul says it this way. Paul says we're nothing in 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. He says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Without love, we are nothing. So love is the supreme quality that we should have as human beings. And in our context today, Jesus is answering this third and final question that is brought to him. And what he tells us in in here is that love is supreme. It must be the dominant quality in our lives, for without it, we are nothing. So this morning, I want to talk about the supremacy of love by outlining four truths about love. 
And I'm going to go ahead and just give them to you now, but we'll unpack them one at a time. We're going to look at this. We're going to look at the priority of love, the dedication of love, the scope of love, and the value of love. All that from our text in Mark 12 this morning. First of all, the priority of love, your first point. Follow along as I read Mark chapter 12, which reads as this. The scribe asks, which commandment is the most important of all? In verse 29, Jesus answers, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So here we are. We're back in Mark 12. We've been in Mark 12 for a while now, and we're still dealing with Jesus and the Jewish leadership, how they are rejecting Jesus, and he is rejecting them. They brought him questions. We've dealt with questions for the past several weeks. We had the question a couple weeks ago of paying taxes and how Jesus navigated around their trap and answered their question wisely. Last week, we dealt with a question that was really based from bad doctrine. We saw how Jesus, again, avoided another trap and yet corrected the bad doctrine and answered them, again, wisely. And this week, we deal with the greatest commandment. Now, a question, what have we learned about all these questions? What what have these questions taught us about Jesus? The way that Jesus had answered all of these questions clearly teach us that he is divine. We see his divinity in the way he navigates all these questions. Jesus is God, and that truth is apparent in how he has dealt with all this questioning, all these traps that they've been trying to set for him. And that's the main takeaway we should, we should walk away with from, from the passage here in Mark 12. We should be astounded at Jesus' ability to answer so wisely, to avoid traps, and yet provide satisfactory answers to their questions. Only God could be so precise. You and I, let's just face it, you and I would have fallen prey to the trap in one way or another. But Jesus marvelously sidesteps the trap and silences his would-be accusers. But we get to this question in verse 28, and if you notice, there's a shift in tone. The scribe here who brings this question to Jesus doesn't appear to be trying to trap him. This seems to be a sincere question. Now, just by way of reminder, scribes were teachers of the law. They were the legal experts. They knew the Torah, that is the law of Moses. They knew it thoroughly. They studied God's word. And this scribe brings What I believe here is a sincere question of Jesus. I don't believe he's trying to trap him. I believe this is a sincere question. Look at verse 28 again. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, he asked, which commandment is the most important of all? So he comes into this dispute that we've seen the last couple of weeks with the Pharisees and the Herodians, first of all, then the Sadducees from last week, and he sees how well Jesus answers him, and that prompts him to ask this question, which commandment is the most important of all? I believe he's truly wondering here, what would Jesus say to this answer? Now, rabbis... They counted 613 individual commandments from the law. 365 of those were negative, the thou shalt not type of commandments, 
and 248 of those were positive, you shall do this type of commandments. And scribes would debate which commandments were heavy and which commandments were light. In other words, which commandments held more weight, which ones are the ones we should focus on, and which ones are the ones that are not quite so significant. They would debate that. And then some rabbis attempted to summarize the whole law in one command. In fact, there's a story of a Jewish rabbi named Hillel that lived from 40 B.C. to 10 A.D., and he attempted to define the whole law in this statement. What you hate for yourself, do not do to your neighbor. That was his way of trying to summarize the entire law. Now, personally, I think he missed the mark there, but that's beside the point. The point is that scribes would ponder and debate, could the law, could the the law of Moses be summed up in one statement, in one command? And that's what this scribe brings to Jesus. Sum it up for me, Jesus. What is the greatest commandment? So I don't believe, again, I don't believe we're looking at a trap here, but a person who is genuinely interested in what Jesus has to say. And that leads us to this topic. What is the greatest commandment? It has to do with love. The priority of love. Jesus tells the scribe the one command that sums up all other commands is love for God and love for people. Love God, love people. In fact, that would sum up today's message. Love God, love people. Go home and do that, and you've been obedient to God's word. Love God, love people. Now, in answer, in specific answer to this question, Jesus quotes from two Old Testament books. He quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Leviticus 19. From Deuteronomy, we get the first part. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And then from Leviticus 19, we get the you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the passage from Deuteronomy comprises in part what we, what we would call the Shema, or what the Jews would call the Shema, which is a confession of faith that many Jews even today recite every morning and every evening. And by bringing in Leviticus 19, Jesus is declaring that love for your neighbor is a natural outflow of love from God. When we are loving God, when we've got the vertical right, the natural outflow will be the horizontal, the love for one another. Now, before I move on in this, there's something that we need to deal with, and perhaps you picked up on it. What does it mean when it says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one? You see that in the text? Jesus here is highlighting the uniqueness of God. The uniqueness of God. There is no other like him. There is no other God. There is no other deity. There is no other entity that even comes close to being like God. He is perfectly and totally unique. And that's what that means there. That's what Jesus is highlighting, taken from Deuteronomy chapter 6, that God is one. It's the uniqueness, and that forms the basis for why we should love God. Why should we love God? Because he's unique, because he is the only one, because he alone is God. Now, you might read that in the text. You might think to yourself, what about the Trinity? God in three persons, how does that work into here? I mean, don't we believe that? Yes, we believe that. Harvest Decatur affirms the doctrine of the Trinity, God is Father, Son, and Spirit, but they're also all God. It's the mystery of God as three in one, 
And it's important that we remember that, but it's also important that we realize what's being stressed in our passage right here is the uniqueness of God, and that's the reason we should love him. This is the priority of God. We love God for who he is. He is the creator. He is the sustainer. And Jesus is saying our first and foremost priority is to love God. So if we took those definitions of love that I talked about at the very beginning of the message, then we conclude that love for God is a commitment to him above all else. God comes first. You know, if, if any of you have ever played a sport, you know that coaches a lot of times will tell their players the first and foremost thing you need to do to play well is to commit to the team. You have to be committed to the team in order to play well together. You could be the best player on the field, but if you don't commit to the team, you're just going to drag everybody else down. You're going to play poorly. You're not going to execute the gameplay well. If you're focused on yourself, your priorities are backwards, and the same is true with God. If you do not put God first, if you are not committed to him above all else, your priorities are messed up, and your life is off track. might not seem like it. Everything actually might seem like it's going well, but if God is not first, you're off track and eventually you're going to derail. My beloved friends, are you committed to God above all else? Is he your first and foremost priority? Is everything in your life filtered through your love and commitment to God? This can be, this can be very hard for us, just to be honest, because so much at life, of, so much of life pulls at our commitments. We have commitments to our families. We have commitments to work. We have commitments to ministry. We have commitments to our neighborhood. And so much pulls at us. And none of those things are wrong, but we so easily can get those things in the wrong order. If anything comes before God, even the good things of life, if anything comes before God, we've got it backwards. If anything takes priority over God, our priorities are misplaced. Jesus says in Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, that's strong language. And I submit to you that Jesus doesn't literally mean we hate these people. Otherwise, that would contradict what we just read in Mark 12, 31, to love our neighbor as ourself. Jesus is speaking hyperbole. He's exaggerating on purpose. He's saying, your love for me should come before the love of all those other relationships. So church, is Jesus' priority over family, over friends, over yourself, over job, over goals, over all the activities in your life, over money? Is he priority? And you might say to yourself, Sometimes, but I need some more here. What, what does this actually look like? What does it look like to have God as priority? Well, that leads us to our next point. Second point, the dedication of love. We saw the priority of love, now the dedication of love. Look at verse 29. Jesus answered, 
The most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. That's all in language. That's wholehearted, comprehensive, no room for anything else. To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is to love God with all you are. I once heard a speaker say it this way, love God with all your everything. Love God with all your everything. Now let's break this down. What do these individual parts mean? What does it mean to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? Well, first of all, let's look at the heart. In the Greek, the word is cardia, and it does literally mean the organ that pumps blood, yes, but just like the English word heart, it's got another meaning. It's got a deeper meaning. It means the center and source of the whole inner life. Think of this as the source of your deepest desires. That's the heart. From the heart, we should desire God, and if anything comes before God in our desires, then we've crossed a line. The soul is the seat of our emotions. Jesus says in Matthew 26, 38, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. In other words, my emotions are distressed. Our emotions are to be wrapped up in God, in love for God. Believe it or not, it's okay to feel things about God. We should feel things about God. I know there's, there's thinkers out there and there's feelers out there. Thinkers, it's okay to feel things about God. Our emotions should be wrapped up. But guess what? Feelers, it's okay to think things about God. Look what's next. The mind. The mind is our reasoning and understanding. And this is where we get our intelligence. This is our thinking capability. We are to love God with our minds. In other words, our thoughts are to honor God. Our thinking process is to honor God. And whenever our thoughts get off onto things that do not honor God, we're not loving God with our minds. And finally, our strength. This is literally physical strength. It's like when you go to do a task around the house maybe, or when you go to play a sport, or you go to do something, and you give it your all, that kind of, I'm all in, I'm going to get this done, that's what we're talking about. All strength for God. We love him with all of our strength, everything we have, we're all in. We are to give God our hearts, our souls, our minds, and our strength, all in, comprehensive, no room for anything else. John MacArthur writes this, the intellectual, emotional, volitional, and physical elements of personhood are all involved in loving God. Genuine love for God is an intelligent love, an emotional love, a willing love, and an active love. God's wholehearted love for believers must not be reciprocated with half-hearted devotion. In other words, love God with all yourself. That's the dedication we are after. We are to love God with our all, totally dedicated, totally committed, all in. So what does this say to us today? How do we do this? Well, my brothers and sisters, there is no room in our lives to love God and yet to cling to other things. I'm going to challenge you with a funny phrase. I'm going to say this. Burn the ships. 
And you're thinking, what? No, burn the ships. Let me explain. In 1519, Hernan Cortez arrived in the New World, what we now call Mexico, with 600 men. His men were tired from the voyage, the natives were not friendly, and just surviving on the land was a struggle. But Hernan Cortez knew it would be very tempting for he and his men to turn back, so he made history by burning the ships that brought them there. What was his message? Why did he do that? He said, there's no turning back. There's only one direction we can go. And that's the picture of love for God. Burn the ships of whatever's holding you back from love that is purely devoted to God. Be all in. That's the level of dedication God wants. So church, let me ask you, what's your ship? What's that thing that can hold you back from all in love, totally devoted to God? What's the thing? Husbands, wives, parents, what's the thing that you let hold back your family from wholehearted devotion to God? What are we protective of? What are we fearful of? Is it our own security? Are we fearful of losing house, job, children, spouse? Are we worried about speaking up for Christ because of what it might do to our reputation? Are we obsessed with success or power or advancement? Are you nostalgic, stuck in the past? It's Christmas time. It's very, very, very many of us tend to revert to childhood thoughts and childhood traditions during this time because we want to relive the good old days. Nothing wrong with the good old days, but does it keep you from pursuing God as your one love? Are you all in about Jesus Christ Or are you all in about your 401k, or your hobby, or your health? Burn the ships. Put Christ first. Now, I'm not necessarily saying just get rid of all those things. I understand that we need these things. But what I'm saying is simply evaluate your dedication level to them. If anything takes precedence over God, burn the ship. Be all in for Jesus. That's the devotion of love that we are looking for. That, rather, that's the devotion of love God is looking for, the devotion of love. Now, look at, or, I'm sorry, the dedication of love. Now, look at this, the scope of love, number three, point number three, the scope of love. What is the scope of love? Now, scope here means area. It means everything that's included, and Jesus gives us two things. Actually, the scope doesn't seem that big. It's just two things, love God, love people. Can't be any clearer than that. That's the scope of love. We are to love God. We are to love people. The verse says, to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. God is to receive our love. Our affections are being directed to him. But then look at verse 31. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, in Luke 10, 29, that sparked a follow-up question. A scribe asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Who is our neighbor? You know, we immediately associate it with those living near us, and that's appropriate. In fact, the word actually means nearby, near, or close. So in one sense, yes, the person who lives near us, but that's not the full meaning of the word. If we are to love those who are nearby, the question becomes, well, who is nearby? Who are those we associate with? Who are those we interact with? And you've heard me say this from the pulpit before, who's in your sphere of influence? Those are our neighbors. 
And those are the ones we can love and influence the most. But Jesus does not mean to limit our love to merely these people that we like. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In short, we are to love all people, those who are easy to love and those who are not. And Jesus gives us the standard, by the way. He gives us the standard by which we are to love. He says in verse 31, love your neighbor. What's the next part? As yourself. Now, some have taken this to mean that we should promote self-love. Some have even gone so far as to say, well, you can't really love people unless you learn to love yourself. But that's not what Jesus is saying. I'm going to say something obvious here. Self-love is not something we struggle with. We got that one. Too much. We all love ourselves. Ephesians 5, 28 and 29, Paul is exhorting the husband to love his wife, and he writes this. In the same way, husbands love your wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. No one ever hated his own flesh. We naturally tend to and care for ourselves. We make sure that we're fed. We make sure that we're provided for, and that's natural. And what Jesus is saying in Mark 12 is, let what is natural for yourself be applied to others. So if it's natural that we care for ourselves, let's care for others. And this can mean a variety of different things. Sometimes caring for somebody is simply being a listening ear. Just stopping and giving them your time. Sometimes that's what they need. Sometimes it's a quick text. Hey, praying for you. Love you. Sometimes it's keeping thoughts inside of our head instead of letting them come out of our mouth. Sometimes caring for someone is stocking their fridge. Sometimes caring for someone is lending a helping hand, whatever the case may be. You know, interestingly enough, I was, I was on the receiving end of this a couple of weeks ago. I was in line at Aldi, and I was buying one item for less than $2, and I'd left my debit card at home. And I'm standing there in line. He'd already rung me up. And I'm standing there in line, and I'm thinking, okay, I think I might have enough cash in the car. So I told him, I'm going to run and grab cash. I'll be right back. And he didn't let me get out. He didn't let me leave. He slapped down two bucks, and he said, hey, I got this. Don't worry about it. Now, I don't know if he's a believer or not, but I do know that was an act of love, and it was instructive to me to be that kind of man to other people, to be ready to help when God creates an opportunity. We don't know from day to day what God might bring into our lives, but the challenge is this, love others. Love God, love others. That's the scope of love. So we've seen the priority of love, the dedication of love, the scope of love, and one final thing, the value of love. Let me explain what I mean by the value of love. Let's first return to the text. So Jesus finishes his answer with the scribe, and the scribe agrees with him. Look at verse 32. The scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as yourself, as oneself, is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. 
And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. The scribe's response here is positive. That's right, Jesus. You are absolutely right. That's the greatest commandment, to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love our neighbor as ourself. You might have noticed that the scribe uses a different word than mind. It's translated understanding, but just know that it means the same thing. The scribe is agreeing with Jesus. And then he adds this, it's better than sacrifices and offerings. Love is better than sacrifices and offerings. What's he saying there? He's saying that loving God is far more worthwhile than religious ritual. Love is more valuable than following religious rituals. See, here's the thing. Many people get caught up in religious ritual. They're thinking, this is what I need to do to please the Lord. That their relationship with the Lord is comprised of doing religious duties. A lot of people think that way. People believe that all the time. That things like even good things, going to church and reading my Bible and doing missions work and outreach and all this, giving to the poor, you fill in the blank, doing all this, that's how we love God is what they say. But the scribe says here that loving God is much more than sacrifices. Now, just to give you a little bit of context of where he's coming from, sacrifices and offerings were a major part of the work of the temple. If you were a Jew, you would bring an animal to be sacrificed to the temple. Sacrifices happened all the time. In fact, the Bible dedicates an entire book to sacrifices. It's the book of Leviticus. It's a thrilling read. Well, for some of us. It's a thrilling read. Leviticus is all about the sacrificial system. It outlines all the different sacrifices and offerings. It was a major part of worship practice. So to say loving God was greater than sacrifice and offering would be like us today saying loving God is better than preaching and worship songs, which it is. Now, don't get the wrong idea. Jesus and the scribe are not saying we should do away with those things. They are saying these things have no value unless we first love God. The value is in the love. Reading your Bible, believe it or not, has no value that is in meriting God's favor. You can't go through the practice of reading God's word and expect God to be favorable toward you unless you love God. And then there's value in reading his word. Then there is value in worshiping with other believers. Then there is value in service. Read your Bible. Be a witness to others. Get your tail to church on Sundays, but not because you're trying to please God, but because you love God. Let those things be an outflow of your love for God. For the Jew in Jesus' day, first should have come loving God And then there was value in the sacrifice. What I'm trying to tell you is that there is no value in external works to try to gain favor with God. You choose to love him, and out of that love comes these external works. Does that make sense? Do you know what this does when we approach life this way? It takes legalism out of the equation. If we follow a pattern of religious observances without love, it's just legalistic practices. 
And if that word's not familiar to you, legalism, it refers to our doing religious things out of human effort in order to be accepted by God. That's legalism. An example would be, I avoid using swear words so God will approve of me. And that kind of thinking is spiritually damaging. And beyond that, legalism doesn't work. It doesn't get God's favor. There's nothing I can do, even good things, that can merit God's favor. I need to love God. Because of Jesus Christ, I already have his favor. I need to prioritize him, not religious practices. So don't fool yourself into thinking you can make God like you because you follow a certain pattern of external ritual duties. He's not impressed. That's what the Pharisees tried to do. That kind of thinking, you know what that kind of thinking is? It's a Jesus plus mentality. Jesus plus something mentality. We've talked about this before. Jesus plus my service to the needy. Jesus plus being a perfect spouse or parent. Jesus plus my avoidance of sin. Jesus plus you fill in the blank. What are you secretly adding to your relationship with Jesus as a means to gain his favor? Here's the formula you need to remember right here. Jesus plus something equals nothing. But Jesus plus nothing equals everything. What are you adding to God's word? What lifestyle must you have or what sin must you avoid in order to feel like you're gaining favor with God? Drop that thing. It's a legalistic mindset. It's I've got to obey to stay right with God when in reality we should obey because we are right with God. See, I'm not saying we shouldn't obey. I'm saying there is value in the love when God is first, when we love him, when we are, when we are right with him, which we are as, as followers of Jesus Christ, then we obey out of that love. When we love God, we want to obey not out of fear of losing his favor, but simply because we love him. We desire to obey out of love. We shouldn't feel compelled to obey out of fear. That's the value of love. The scribe answers favorably. We saw that in the text. But then Jesus gets in the final word. Did you see that in verse 34? When Jesus tells the scribe this, you are not far from the kingdom of God. When he says that, what he's saying is, you have embraced an intellectual understanding of the truth, but you've not fully submitted to the authority of the Messiah. David E. Garland is a commentator. He wrote a commentary on Mark, and he writes this, to be in the kingdom... One must do more than simply approve of Jesus' teaching. One must submit entirely to his authority and person. You're so close, Mr. Scribe. But don't forget, close only counts with hand grenades and horseshoes. There's a danger in being close to the kingdom of God, but not in the kingdom of God. Church, do you do more than merely approve of Jesus' teaching? Do you agree with Jesus and that's it? Do you read his statements about love like we talked about today and say, yep, that's right, but fail to take it any further? Have you submitted to the authority and person of Jesus Christ? Said differently, is he your Lord and Savior? You know, 
I stand up here almost every week and I challenge any person listening to me who doesn't have a relationship with Christ to strongly consider that, to consider coming to Jesus Christ. I urge people to come to Jesus Christ and I do this because I want everyone who hears my voice to have the opportunity to receive him, not as a good teacher, not as someone who lived a good moral life. That's not who Jesus was. Jesus was and is the divine servant. He is God who gave his life for the payment of sin. Do you believe that? Have you surrendered to him? If not, you can come to Christ right now simply in the quietness of your heart. You can receive him by admitting you're a sinner in need of a savior. You can say in the quietness of your own heart, Lord, I have messed up. My life is a mess and I need you. Please forgive me of my sins and receive me as your son or daughter. You can pray that right now and depend on him by faith. And the Bible says you will be saved. And if anyone prayed that prayer today, any of you out there, if you prayed that prayer today, will you come tell me? I just want to talk to you. I just want to praise God for the work he did in your life. I'm not going to embarrass anyone. I'm not going to call attention to that. I just want to pray for you and thank God for his work in you. My brothers and sisters in Jesus what do we do with everything I just got done saying? You know, what I've given you today, you could describe this as, as a textbook understanding of love, okay? You know, I've outlined four truths about love. I've tried to give you illustrations and applications and things you can take away and hopefully apply to your lives and grow in your sanctification. But let's be honest, a textbook approach to the topic of love, even though it's true, seems to lack the passion associated with love. I told you at the start of this message that love is not primarily a feeling, and it's not. But make no mistake, love is not without feeling. There is a strong emotional component to love. When we love, we can't help but feel its effect. So to wrap up this sermon, I want your hearts to be stirred. And I hope to do that by providing you a picture of love, not just the textbook definitions we've been talking about, but a picture of love. Let's look at this picture of love together. God saw you and I broken, sinful, ugly. His holiness demanded that sin be paid for Yet he did not leave us to pay that penalty ourselves. God chose to take that penalty upon himself. God stepped through eternity into time and space and wrapped himself in human flesh. He lived among us, suffered as we do, faced hunger and sleeplessness and rejection. He spent his days with the least of these, feeding, healing, teaching, and removing the enemy's influence. And after all that, he marched toward Jerusalem, the place he would be ultimately rejected. 
He cried out to his father when the thought of facing the wrath of God nearly overwhelmed him. Yet even in that, he submitted. He let himself be led away, forsaken by his friends. He kept quiet when accused. He did not raise his fists when struck. He did not flee when they led him away to Golgotha. He did not resist when he was stretched out on the wooden beams. He did not protest when nails pierced his hands and feet. He did not remove himself from the cross as he hung there in agony, blood flowing down his broken body. He endured the taunts. He bore the public shame. He cried out in anguish when his own father abandoned him and he died alone in place of you and me. That is love. Pray with me. Jesus, your love for us is indescribable. We can't begin to fathom what it meant for you to take that cross upon yourself. We can't begin to imagine the pain, humiliation, and loneliness you felt as you died in our place. That is the picture of love. You are love. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for the sacrifice, the grace, the love. Jesus, help us to love you as we ought. Fill us with the power we need to love you and let that love spill out onto our neighbors. Help us love each other in this church and without this church. I pray our love for each other will be strong and contagious. May it grow ever stronger. We pray in the great name of Jesus. Amen.